0: But if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? Hello, hardworking Americans. Thanks for tuning in to The Shrewsbury Show. I am your host, Colleen Shrewsbury, and you are listening to 93.3 FM WTRH Ramsey. No doubt you've all heard about the Supreme Court ruling in favor of religious freedom, well, I've been thinking about it. So the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to 2 that the 40-foot peace cross honoring fallen soldiers from World War I in Prince George's County, Maryland, could stay, and that it did not violate separation of church and state. The case is called American Legion v. the American Humanist Association, and the Supreme Court took it up after the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the cross unconstitutional because it violated the separation of church and state. Because the cross was on property owned by the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, the humanists said the cross violated the separation of church and state. They, of course, used the Establishment Clause as grounds to sue. Whenever people use this phrase, separation of church and state, as grounds for their complaint, they get away with it by claiming it has something to do with the Establishment Clause. These are two separate items. The Establishment Clause and separation of church and state are two different things, but separation of church and state is not in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. The concept of separation between church and state comes from a message from Thomas Jefferson sent to the Danbury Baptist Association. People have so twisted these words and what Jefferson meant by them and taken this phrase completely out of context. In order to understand What Jefferson meant by separation between church and state, you have to read the paragraph where it appears from the beginning. It says, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only, and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So you see, there's no way you could deduce that he meant that no one could express their faith publicly. He says right there, Quote, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship. So he is saying that as American citizens we have the right of freedom of religion and the exercise thereof, meaning that we can privately and publicly express our faith without fear of reprisal and we're not required to justify it to anyone. It doesn't seem like there is a consensus on this subject because we just had two recent incidents with members of the Temple of Satan. Credit here, the Daily Wire. A woman named Iris Fontana, herself a member of the Temple of Satan, gave the opening invocation at a government meeting in Alaska, but I won't quote any of it because it was disturbing just reading about it. Apparently, this woman brought a lawsuit against the borough where she was speaking, and the Alaska Superior Court ruled the policy that they were to rule on violated the Alaskan Constitution's Establishment Clause. So now they have a new policy that allows anyone in the borough to give the invocation, people of all religions included. According to the Daily Wire, this wasn't the first incident involving the Temple of Satan. During Christmas 2018, the Chicago chapter of the Temple of Satan forced state officials to put their Snaketivity statue next to the Christmas tree in front of the Illinois State House. The title of the statue was, Knowledge is the Greatest Gift, which, as Joseph Curl at the Daily Wire said, overtly mocks the idea of Christ as God's great gift to the world. The statue was of a hand holding up an apple with a snake wrapped around the arm. And Curl said that the statue was included because while the Satanic Temple says it is a non-theistic organization, the group is still considered by the state to be a religious organization and thus is given the same rights as others. I don't think it's unreasonable to conclude from these two incidents that these anti Christian groups are allowed to plow their way through the courts and demand that their views be respected and they be given the same rights as everyone else under the Constitution, but Christians just have to sit down and shut up because their expressions of faith are a violation of the Establishment Clause or the separation of church and state. Apparently, we need to discuss the First Amendment and the concept of separation of church and state. What does it mean? Even if separation of church and state was actually mentioned anywhere in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, which it's not, it means the state will stay out of the church, not the church out of the state. I am not a Christian sometimes, meaning I'm not a Christian behind closed doors and then not Christian when I step out of my house. The concept of separation of church and state does not mean that I am banned from talking about my faith at work, in school, or anywhere else in public. I don't understand why everyone is so offended by Christianity, but not by any other religion in the world. Apparently, the human association that sued in the first place wants to limit the scope of the ruling and to continue going after public displays of Christian faith. Even if the cross was on property owned by the state of Maryland, that still does not violate the Establishment Clause. So let's go over the meaning of the Establishment Clause one more time. It does not mean the state cannot permit any expressions of faith on its property or by people it employs. It means that the state cannot establish a religion sanctioned and run by the state and compel American citizens to follow it. Having a cross or the Ten Commandments on public property does not establish a religion. Children are allowed to discuss their faith at school, to read their Bible at school, and I think teachers ought to be able to discuss it as well. There is nothing violating the Establishment Clause if someone is discussing a religion. There is nothing unconstitutional about mentioning God in the oath of office, and there is nothing unconstitutional about government officials starting meetings in prayer. If you're listening to this and you're offended by Christianity and public expressions of it, before you try to sue somebody over exercising their First Amendment right, which is obviously in the Constitution, I want you to ask yourself, does this situation involve the state establishing a state-run religion? If not, then you have no grounds to sue. The First Amendment says, and I quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now that's the entire First Amendment, but just for good measure, I'll read the first part again. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In the case of the World War One Memorial, and in the hundreds of cases of students who dared to express their Christian faith in public, every one of these people had and have the right to express their faith in public. And not only that, but they have the right to express it freely. This hostility toward Christians has got to stop. You know, 100 years ago, 75 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, there wasn't all this hostility toward Christianity. I seriously want to know why Christians and Jews, but mostly Christians, are singled out for persecution. I know Jesus said that people hated him, so surely they would hate us because of him. But my gosh, I didn't think that it would be this severe. I know that there are people in the Middle East, in Africa, as well as Asia, who suffer much worse persecution than we do, but that doesn't mean that there's no reason to speak up about this. Those are parts of the world where faith is not protected as a right by their governments. Here in the United States, freedom of religion is the first part of the First Amendment. Obviously, the framers of the Constitution deemed this the most important Government has the responsibility to secure the rights of the people, not to infringe upon them. I think possibly the biggest reason for all this persecution is that as a nation, we've largely lost our faith. I think we've lost our faith, and many Christians have been made to feel like they're alone in their opinions, and that they're afraid to speak up. You know, speaking of schools and the Constitution, I don't think that the schools are doing a good enough job teaching it, so I will. First, it is important to say that the Constitution of the United States is unique in all political documents of the history of mankind because it's a document of negative rights, of what the government can't do to you. In the interest of time, we're only going to discuss a little constitutional history and Articles 1, 2, and 3, The Three Branches of Government. Initially, the Constitution didn't include the Bill of Rights. Thomas Jefferson was not at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 because he was in Paris at the time, serving as minister to France, but he kept himself apprised of the results of the convention. In a letter to James Madison, Jefferson wrote of his dismay that there was no Bill of Rights included in the new Constitution, which included freedom of religion, freedom of the press, protection against standing armies, restriction against monopolies, the eternal and unremitting force of the habeas corpus laws, and trials by jury in all matters of fact, triable by the laws of the land and not by the law of nations. He said, Let me add that a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, general or particular, and what no just government should refuse or rest on inferences. It wasn't until later that a Bill of Rights was included after the states ratified the Constitution, but with several states listing numerous desired amendments. At the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Patrick Henry said, You have a Bill of Rights to defend you against the state government, which is bereaved of all power, and yet you have none against Congress, though it is in full and exclusive possession of all power. You arm yourselves against the weak and defenseless and expose yourselves naked to the armed and powerful." On September 25th, 1789, the first Congress approved 12 amendments, 10 of which became the Bill of Rights two years later in 1791. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 resulted in a constitutional representative republic. And when Benjamin Franklin was leaving the convention, a woman named Mrs. Powell from Philadelphia asked him, Well, doctor what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin famously said, a republic, if you can keep it. It's a very short but heavy response. In a republic like the one we have outlined in the Constitution, in order to remain a free people, it requires a moral responsibility and self-control from every individual in society. Whether inadvertent or otherwise, John Adams gave a short and profound explanation of Franklin's response. He said, We have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Here's the part where you had to pay a little closer attention. Some of you may think this is pretty rudimentary, but sadly, there are people out there who don't know these things, and it's very important that they learn. Article 1 of the Constitution describes the legislative branch, which writes the laws. The idea behind listing the legislative branch first is because this is supposed to be the most powerful branch of government. Consider that the Speaker of the House is third in line to the presidency after the president and vice president. Were the Speaker of the House to become President, then the President would essentially be elected directly by the people. Because the House of Representatives is elected directly by the people, it derives its powers from the people, and it has the most members in Congress. Thus, it is supposed to be the most powerful part of the entire government. The direct election by the people is supposed to allow us, the people, to write our own laws and govern ourselves We are a nation of self-governance. We elect members of the House every two years, and the number of representatives is determined by population. The framers of the Constitution believed that frequent elections were the only way to be sure that the House was truly representative of the people. James Madison wrote in Federalist 52, As it is essential to liberty that the government in general should have a common interest with the people, so it is particularly essential that the branch of it under consideration should have an immediate dependence on and an immediate sympathy with the people. Frequent elections are unquestionably the only policy by which this dependence and sympathy can be effectually secured." Unfortunately, I don't think the founders foresaw career politicians. The Senate is a bit of a different story. Originally, the Senate was chosen by the state legislatures, but at the beginning of the progressive era, the early 20th century, the Constitution was amended for the 17th time to require that senators be elected directly by the people rather than by the state legislatures. Each state, regardless of population, is granted two senators, serving terms of six years. The intention behind having the state legislature select senators rather than by direct election was, as Madison said in Federalist 62, to give the state governments a hand in creating the federal government, and it provided a convenient link between the two systems of state and federal government. The idea of having two senators, regardless of population of each state, was to give equal voice to all states, both large and small, in the federal government. This would prevent the larger states from drowning out the voices of the smaller states. The equal vote of all states in the Senate is meant to recognize the sovereignty of the individual states. Providing a Senate with equal votes in Congress also puts a check on the legislative body itself. The House represents the people as individuals and the Senate represents the states as sovereign bodies. By having these two bodies within the legislative branch, no resolution can be passed without the agreement of the people and of the states. The check on the legislative body also prevents the government proclivity of excessive lawmaking. The two-body legislature provides a check on the government in order to prevent usurpation of power by one branch or person. It's too bad that our Congress has abdicated this feature of its responsibility. Ideally, bicameral legislature is also meant to provide a check against the passionate whims of one or a few factious members of Congress. This is especially useful now when we have a few rogue leftist members of Congress who would love nothing more than to inflict the odious desires of a very small minority onto the rest of us. Perhaps this is why the Democrat Party has long since resorted to using the judicial branch to legislate. Article 2 of the Constitution is the executive branch. And actually, this is one of the shortest sections of the Constitution which indicates how much power the founders did not want the executive to have. Executive power is vested in a chief executive, which is the president. The president must be at least 35 years old and a natural-born citizen at the time of birth. This doesn't necessarily mean that the president must have been born within the geographic confines of the United States. It means that one or both of the parents must have been a citizen at the time of birth, making the child a US citizen. One can be born in Canada, Mexico, or anywhere else on Earth and still become president so long as he or she was an American citizen at the time of birth. The president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and the president also has the power to pardon anyone, including him or herself, except in cases of impeachment the president has the power to make treaties, but only with the advice and consent of Congress. So this would mean that Obama unconstitutionally entered the U.S. into the Paris Climate Accords. As I recall, he did not seek the advice and consent of Congress. And as we all know, the president appoints ambassadors, department secretaries, and judges, both of the Supreme Court and of the lower federal courts. And the president has the power to veto bills. What's interesting is that Initially, there was no constitutional limit as to how many terms the president could serve. George Washington set the precedent of two terms when he stepped down from the presidency after his second term. After that, it was just expected that each president would follow Washington's example of serving only two terms. No president ran for a third term, let alone a fourth, until the left's favorite progressive, Franklin Roosevelt, came along. Thankfully, the 22nd Amendment limited the president to two terms. Article 3 of the Constitution outlines the judicial branch and its functions. The judicial branch consists of the Supreme Court and the lower courts. Judges are meant to hold their positions during good behavior. So I'm curious to know what exactly defines bad behavior and the process to remove such a judge. Can we get rid of judges that try to legislate from the bench? Just asking for a friend. All people within the United States are equally subject to the law, including the president. The vice president, secretaries, and former secretaries are also subject to the same laws as everybody else. That's supposed to be a not-so-subliminal message to the previous administration. All crimes, except in cases of impeachment, are tried by jury. In Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton mentions that the judiciary is meant to be the bulwark of a limited constitution against legislative encroachments. Sadly, it seems that Congress doesn't want to legislate at all because either they have given up on it or the courts have usurped that power or both. Hamilton argued that because the judiciary is to be a check on the legislative branch, it was a good reason for the lifetime appointments of judges. I don't think they could have foreseen the activist judges we have now who legislate from the bench on a regular basis. Lifetime appointments were supposed to cause judicial independence and prevent political influence of judges. I think whenever the Convention of States comes together and amends the Constitution, it will be interesting to see if they include term limits for judges and how that plays out. Thanks for listening to The Shrewsbury Show on 93.3 FM WTRH. Tune in next time for more.